This is Deep South Humor and Heart, presented by Robbie Productions, Jacksonville, Alabama. I'm Rob Goodwin, and welcome to today's show. I'll just draw a scene for you. I'm sitting here in my neon blue chair, high atop Delwood Avenue, just looking out at these busy streets and this beautiful sunshine on this Sunday afternoon. Although I do have to tell you, my weekend hasn't exactly gone as planned. I had some great plans yesterday, and some good old Southern family drama uh, took care of that for me. And I got up this Sunday morning on my third or fourth day on my low-carb diet. And what did I do? I had some pancakes. So my weekend isn't exactly going as planned. But speaking of hot off the grill, um, Alabama football, Alabama Crimson Tide is hot off another national championship. So if you're an Auburn fan or an Ohio State fan, please don't change the channel. Bear with me, I promise we're not going to gross you out too much, but in the studio today, my guest is Richard Smith. He's a former coach, teacher, assistant principal. He's an actor, an all-around do-gooder. This man grows a huge garden every year just so he can help feed uh, those are in need, widows, widowers, single moms, you name it. He's just an all-around great person. In fact, one of my mentors. Welcome to the show, Richard. Well, thanks for that intro. Wow, we probably need to finish right now. You go ahead and hand me that twenty dollars bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell me what what do you think about this football season that we just had? Well, you know, it was an amazing year. Uh, all the problems that this this team had to work their way through to even get to uh, the final four. Um, I was thinking just last night after I'd watched the game for about the 12th or 13th time that they didn't even have two or three of their best players uh, in this final four. And I just wonder how well they would have done if if they'd had all those players that they did not have. I agree with you. And, you know, it seems like to me, especially over the last couple of years, that uh, people love to count Alabama out. Um, but always uh, to their own detriment because after the Alabama dynasty and Nick Saban is just not finished yet. Yeah, you know, they uh, when Clemson beat them, uh, they said the dynasty was over. And I think he's won like seven national championships in 13 years at a couple of schools. So uh, to me, that's a dynasty. And I, I think it's still going. Yeah, absolutely. It's not going to end anytime soon. And I, as an Alabama fan, I certainly hope that um, they they keep him around, and I believe that the powers that be at Alabama, you know, are pretty uh, pretty secure with him, going to take care of him. But so, what's your opinion on this? What what is your opinion, Richard, on a man being an Alabama fan if he didn't go to the University of Alabama? And I'll tell you why I asked that in a minute after you answer it. You, you know, I, it, it would be hard. I mean, I, I graduated from Jacksonville, graduated from Jacksonville State University. And, uh, you know, I've remained loyal to, to JSU, but, but uh, you know, as far as football, you know, I've been a, an Alabama fan since I was uh, probably four or five years old uh, and learned how to say roll tide very quickly. And uh, you just become attached. Of course, back then, 
it was Bear Bryant, but to me, Nick Saban has stepped right in the, the footsteps of Bear Bryant. And, and I don't know that you can compare the two because it's two different eras, but uh, he, he's taken right over where Bear Bryant left off. So I, I don't see there's anything wrong with, with being a, an Alabama fan just because you didn't go to school there. Because if you love sports, if you love football, and if you love uh, things being done the right way and the correct way, then uh, you can't help but be an Alabama fan. I agree. um, I've done a lot of writing over the years about uh, my dad, my stepdad, who actually was my dad. He he raised me uh, about his love of Alabama football. And so people have occasionally asked me, um, did you go to Alabama? Did your dad go to Alabama? Somebody in your family, why is there such an obsession with Alabama football? (laughs) But it was just something, and, and I think too, a lot of people in Alabama who didn't really have a pro team to cheer for, uh, you know, you know, Alabama and Auburn are both uh, just here. It's just so much a part of the culture. And that's how my dad was raised as well. But I'm an Alabama fan today because of that man. His name uh, was Floyd Ray. And he was a short man, built really small, but an ego about two to three times his size. Um, and a personality to match, but he was a, he was a tall talker, you know, a little bit of a smart mouth. I, I might've picked up a little of that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was always going to whoop somebody, you know, and that kind of thing. So I might've picked up a few of those things, but what I'm most proud of is, is his love for Alabama football. And it, it was our Saturday tradition to, you know, run to the grocery store with mama. We'd go to the little rocket drive in and, get us some burgers in Jacksonville, go home. And then me and dad and my sister would watch the ball game. And it was just, it was great memories. And I I loved the passion that he had for Bear Bryant and for the team. Uh, Unfortunately, he passed away about a year and a half before Saban landed in Tuscaloosa. And I think to myself all the time, daddy would have loved Nick. You know, (laughs) he just, he absolutely would have loved that. So um, one time, in the late 90s, I guess it was, I, I was working as a um, marketing consultant, a manager with uh, Jack's Restaurants. So I was in their PR department, and we got some free tickets. Look at all that traffic down there on Delwood, Richard. That is just amazing. It's amazing to be sit up here and look out across it. But uh, anyway, I worked in a job where I got some free tickets to the Alabama game. And I go home, and I call up my dad, and I tell him, Hey, I'm going to take you to see Mississippi State this weekend. What? You're kidding. There's no way. There's no way you got tickets. You got to be somebody. You got to this. You got to that. <laughs> I said, Dad, I'm somebody. <laughs> so we 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 hightailed it to Tuscaloosa. Went, you know, just all around the town and looked around as much as we could and went to the game. And I, I think I watched his face as much as I watched the plays just to get to see the excitement. And it was it was so rewarding because he, he didn't really live many years well after that. And so it was just so rewarding to be able to look back on those two or three times that I actually were, was able to take him to a game. You know, you, you brought up Mississippi State. Now, this brings back memories for me. Um, and the very first uh, Alabama football game I went to see, I was probably seven or eight years old. Maybe it's hard to remember. But uh, I remember uh, – one of my friends took me, and we were sitting up in the nosebleed section. And I was just yelling and yelling and yelling for, for the team. And finally, my friend turned to me and said, 
you know you're yelling for Mississippi State, don't you? <laughs> uh, the, the, I did not know the difference in the maroon and the crimson <laughs> at the time, but yeah. uh, he finally told me, and of course I was very embarrassed even yeah. at seven or eight years old, but anyway, that was my first experience. I got a little bit better after that. Yeah. I went with some buddies uh, one time to my first Braves game that I'd ever been to, and, and I was really trying to impress these guys. These were guys that I would go cruising with, you know, trying to – pick up women back in the, back in my <laughs> 18, 19 days. So I was really trying to impress them. And they, so we all load up and go to this Braves game and the whole game, I, I was saying, beat the, beat those Pedros, <laughs> but it was Padres. So, <laughs> so I, I feel you. Pedros. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I want to say, I have to tell you something else about Floyd Ray. Uh, he that that ego and that mouth would get him in trouble a little bit uh, with my mom, especially. Uh, I remember this story that uh, that well they worked in the cotton mill first of all. My mom's family were sharecroppers, and really so was uh, my dad's family. And then they they kind of went from the cotton field to the cotton mill, and they both worked at the cotton mill. It's called Blue Mountain. You may remember that I do. I uh, do. down in. Uh, North Aniston. Yes. But uh, they worked there. And Mama would, you know, she'd always fix a supper before they went to work. They were working like a late night shift then. And my granny, she'd take care of us while they worked. But Mama would fix them. She'd fix them a plate to take to supper. Well, she made a stab at some homemade biscuits. And my mother will tell you now, as good a cook as she is, she's not a baker. She cannot bake cakes. And she's never been good at homemade biscuits. Well, she took a stab at it. She'd only been married to my stepdad for a couple of years. And, you know, still that honeymoon phase, still trying to please your husband and all that stuff. Well, she fixed him a plate and go down there to Cotton Mill. And he's eating and he doesn't know she's standing behind him. And he leans over to this other guy and says, I could take one of these biscuits and break a window <laughs> well she's standing right behind him and that hand goes on her hip i tell you what you'll know it the next time i make another biscuit and oh. so for the rest of our lives mother never made it's to this day she's never made homemade biscuits again. Oh, no. my dad would actually have to get up and make the oh, biscuits no. so that's something we've always ragged him about and one more thing i'll have to say about his one of maybe one of his little flaws was he was a big tobacco chewer. Now he, he loved cannonball tobacco and he would gnaw on that stuff <laughs> left and right. But he also kept a Crisco spit can. Now, Richard, I know you've seen this oh, in some of your relatives. Oh, houses. oh yes. Oh yes. But he had this big old Crisco mm -hmm. can and he would stuff some paper towels in it and spit in that. Mm -hmm. And he would leave it until my mother would raise cane to get him to throw that one away and get another Crisco yeah. can. Yeah. Well, one Christmas in particular, she was climbed up on this little stool, putting the star on top of the tree. You know, we've already thrown all those little silver shiny things on it. And it's so pretty and everything's going good. Everybody's getting along. And then she steps off that stool and her toes sink down <laughs> in that Crisco spit can that's sitting there on the floor. Sinks down oh, in all that no. stuff. Yeah. She screamed Floyd Ray and it it, uh, it was not a good day the rest of the day. So, yeah. Ugh, yuck. Yeah. So there's just a couple of stories about my my dad there and uh, how much he loved football. And I, 
I think that's why it's been ingrained in me so much. And I, I remember in the eighties, you know, we didn't win much no. in the eighties, no. which is really where I, I guess there's the time frame that I came of age. And I remember those old stinking Auburn fans at school. They would just make fun of us like crazy because they were beating us oh, more, yeah. more often. Yeah, you're right. In the Pat Dye era. Yes. And I would just, I'd squall like a baby having yeah. to go to school. My dad would just, he would just tear me up about that. But <laughs> I felt like he was the one that made me that way. <laughs> so what's your, uh, tell me, uh, what's your projection going forward now? With the players that we've lost, we have so many that have gone to the pros or going to. You know, um, I think defensively they're going to be a little bit better. And offensively, they may be almost as good. Now, not as good, but almost as good. Um, I think uh, if they can get past the first maybe four or five games, and I haven't looked at the schedule yet, but if they can get past maybe the first four or five games, and stay healthy, I think they can be just as good as they were uh, this past year. Um, uh, the, the quarterback play, you know, should should be good uh, after the uh, – what's his name? Bryce Young, is that his name? That's right, yes. Uh, when he gets a little experience, and it'll, it'll be a, a learning process for him. There's a learning curve for him. But, uh, you know, they're, they're going to run uh, – uh, run some a few more plays with him actually running the ball and uh, um, so he'll he'll be a running quarterback as well as a throwing quarterback so I, I think that'll kind of offset losing Najee and I think Brian Robinson's going to have a big year um, I think him coming back was real big and and the center coming back uh, Owens is going to be real big for us. so yeah. I, I I think they're gonna I think they're going to be almost as good as they were this year I really do yeah. You know, considering COVID and uh, everything that kind of threw a loop in the in the season, I, I don't know how anybody could doubt that Alabama would be the one to emerge, you know, as the victor because there's just such structure uh, at that school and such organization from Saban's process that we hear about and read about so much. So it's not surprising to me. I kind of felt it all along if we could just finish you know. Yeah, and you know, Nick Saban's leadership, I mean, I'm sure he knows X's and O's and plays and defense and all that, but his management uh, skills and leadership skills are so so good, and, and they it, it transitions down to, uh, to the players, and they had really good team leadership this year. That would be the only question I would really have is what kind of leadership are they going to have next year, but again... You've got some folks coming back, I think, that will take over those leadership roles. And I think that's going to be key for them is, is who who going to be the leaders and what kind of leaders are they going to be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Nick Saban has a way of making you a leader. You want to play for him and you want to be a leader. He, he talks to you. He, these things don't just happen. Um, I know you probably saw uh, Matt Jones. Uh, they were talking about how he had developed and matured and he was trying to catch uh, confetti with his tongue in one of those pictures, and he, that's how far he's come now into uh, to his senior year this year to leading them to victories. Yeah. Well, um, so look, looking ahead though to the future and the fact that uh, Alabama keeps continuing to lose coaches, offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators. Do you feel like uh, you know as a 
as an expert Alabama fan that you are, that uh, that's just something we're going to have to deal with as long as Saban is there. It, it is, and uh, you know we're going to we're going to lose heavily next year. I mean, we'll we've got a lot of uh, uh, guys that will be juniors next year that will be leaving for sure. And uh, but you know they they trust him and they trust his process and they trust that what he's telling them is true concerning their pro career also. And uh, these guys, just like uh, the Owens guy that's coming back at center, and he could have easily gone and been like a, probably a fourth-round draft choice, fourth or fifth. If he has a good year, he can jump to maybe second or third. And you're talking millions of dollars there. So as far as the business as- aspect of it, uh, he's protecting them there too and, and guiding them and, and leading in that area also. Very good, very good. Well, let's talk a little bit about your coaching days. Um, what what was your favorite sport? I think I know probably what it was, but you, you tell me what your favorite sport was to coach. Well, my favorite uh, sport to coach was basketball, but uh, I, I really enjoyed football also as far as the defensive side. Now, I didn't particularly care for the offensive side. My favorite sport, however, is baseball, and most people don't know that. Um, I really think I probably could have played some baseball, but uh, I'll just be honest with you. We were so poor, I I couldn't get to baseball practice, so I never got to to try baseball. Uh, I I rode with other other people to get to basketball practice. Of course, I never played football. My mom would not let me play. She felt like I'd get injured, and and she may have been right. I don't know, but I would have tried it. Uh, But, um, yeah, I enjoyed basketball a lot, Uh, uh, I, I enjoyed seeing kids. Um, you know, I coached them usually from eighth grade on up, and I, I used. I would love to see them develop. Um, you know, mature and uh, get bigger and stronger and better and, and better people. And, and I don't know what kind of coach I was as far as wins and losses, but I do think I helped some kids uh, develop into pretty good young men, and that, that was very important to me. Well, that's an important aspect of educating in general. And I know you spent uh, how many years, close to 40 years in education? Yeah, right at 40. I think it was 39, uh, uh, 38 and a half, 39. Uh, But I I enjoyed every bit of it. Um, The only thing I did not like was the long drives that I had to go to Rome, Georgia my last 12 years. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you... You teach all day, and then you got to drive another hour to get home. So that was a little rough. But, uh, How was it comparing, you know, teaching in Alabama, say, in the younger years of your career, and then going to Georgia teaching the latter years? Well, actually, I don't know if I could compare them really, other than you know, I think the kids and parents kind of changed a little bit, but as far as expectations and and that sort of thing. But actually, in I would. When I went to Rome, Georgia, it would be more of a supervisory or guidance um, type role, uh, less one-on-one teaching and more, uh, uh, you know, for instance, I helped kids get jobs and that sort of thing. So it was uh, job shadowing, that sort of thing, helping special education kids in the, in the regular classroom. So it was a little different uh, when you're not the head teacher or the lead teacher. I was more of a co-teacher, and mm-hmm. so it was different, and I enjoyed it, but it was a little different. And so since you've retired, we talked about gardening and um, things like that. You're also uh, what's known as a role-play actor um, with the Department of Homeland Security. 
So tell us a little bit about what you do there. You know, when when I heard about now Gerald Price was the person that told me about role playing. I had no idea what that was, but when I heard him talk about it, I'm saying, "Now wait a minute!" So they actually pay you to do this? And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna put an application." The second thing is I met such wonderful people, including uh, my bosses, including Rob, you, and. Uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking, okay, so I'm getting paid for doing something I'm having fun doing, and I've got a great boss and great people to work with. So I said, there's got to be something wrong with this, but there, there's not. I mean, it's, it's just really a great job, and I've missed it tremendously. It's, it's coming up on a year now mm-hmm. that we haven't been out there, and we've had some people that have passed on. We've had some people that aren't coming back, and uh, I miss the camaraderie, but it's a it's a it's a great job, and uh, it, it's a part-time job. So I'm, it allows me to do some of the other things I, I need to do at my church yeah. and, like, like you said, my garden, trying to help people. Uh, Rob, I really feel like uh, that, that God wants me to help people more. And, uh, you know, I, I just feel like I need to be doing more for people who need help. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't, don't mean to be like... Uh, special or anything, but I, I do feel like that's what I need to be doing. Well, I think that's uh, obvious that you feel that way because it shows in your actions. In addition to uh, working as an actor at uh, Homeland Security, where you guys recreate uh, national disasters uh, for training first responders, outside of that, you also do some volunteer <laughs> acting. Uh, you're a member of the same theater group uh, that I'm in, and you You've completed five shows of one production, and we're working on another production that's been halted by COVID, just like your work has. But tell us a little bit about doing the uh, theater to raise money for charity. Well, well, first of all, I I never considered myself an actor, still don't. But, um, you know, I I feel that, that this has been really good for me. It's kind of brought me out so to speak, uh, people that really don't know me, they, they think I'm an extrovert. They say I'm very outward going, but I'm actually not. I'm actually a, a pretty pretty shy person unless I know people, unless I'm in a crowd that I'm comfortable with. And acting uh, really brings you out. It uh, you know it's hard not to be out when you're when you when you happen to say these lines now. I asked you a long time ago not to give me too many lines because I'm getting old. Now, if I were 20 years younger, I yeah. wouldn't be worried about it, but the brain cells just aren't quite like they were. The functioning's not quite like it was, and uh, so I've had to think too much. Uh, I, I don't know if I could do it, but I have tremendously enjoyed this. I did. If you were to ask me, as a matter of fact, several people asked me about it and said, what, why would you do this? And, uh, you know, of course, I, I like you so much and like my fellow actors, and and I thought I'd give it a shot. But uh, I've actually become, uh, to, you know, to where I really like it, and uh, and I miss it tremendously. Uh, this uh, 9 to 12 months that we've been off uh, has really been a long time to be away from these folks and, and the acting process. It really, it really has. Um, and, you know, during that nine months, one of the things that I was able to accomplish is turning the pl- the first play that we did into a book. Mm-hmm. And you were so generous to uh, write the foreword 
uh, for that book, The Dixie Cafe. And um, I really appreciate that. You did a great job. In in your forward, you call yourself and the other actors a ragtag group of non-actors. <laughs> yes. But yes. you guys really did so well. Do you know, you know, at the after every show, people would come up to me and say to me, where did you find all these people? There's, <laughs> are these all professional actors? Because they were just so impressed, you know, and maybe it's because we rehearsed for practically half a year, you know, before we did a show, but I thought we did a great job, you know, pulling it all together and producing it ourselves and uh, to the tune of $7,500. That's how much we raised off that first production. It, it amazed me, uh, you know, I, I knew I was not an actor, but I also knew some of these other folks really weren't actors and actresses, <laughs> yeah. and they fooled me as well. And, uh, of course, you know, charity, uh, I mean, that's uh, when you're doing things for the right reasons, going back to Alabama football. I mean, if, if you trust the process, if you're doing the right things for the right people, then things should fall in line if you have leadership. And, of course, that's where you come in. Uh, you have great leadership skills. You have no idea uh, but these people will do just about anything for you, and um, that, that's very important. Uh, you know, if you have to make somebody do something, um, maybe they shouldn't be in the play, or maybe they shouldn't be in the process. But yeah. you have a way of uh, leading people to make them want to do things, and that's certainly the case with me and most of the people that I know. Well, I think it's about mutual respect and about yeah. creating a you know, just a positive environment and, you know, keeping everybody kind of motivated that way. And we, we really have been very blessed and fortunate that the chemistry uh, for everybody has worked out, you know, really well. Now, <clears throat> Richard, everybody who comes on my podcast, I ask them this question, okay? What was your first car? 1954 Chevrolet. All right, tell me about it. Well, you know what? <clears throat> My dad was a great dad Monday through Thursday, and that, this is not to me be a sad story. I say Monday through Thursday, actually Monday through Friday afternoon to about one o'clock, and then he was a drunk. You didn't see him till like Monday morning again. He'd be off on a three-day drunk. Well, uh, I'm getting on up to like 17, 18 years old, and I want a car, and of course dad would, wouldn't buy me a car. And I was moping around one day, and my uncle, Comer Smith, and I always wondered about that name, Comer. I'd never heard the name Comer before. As a matter of fact, I kind of made fun of him because his name was Comer. Well, this very person, this uncle, came by and saw me moping around one day. He said, what's the matter, Richard? And I said, well, my dad won't buy me a car. And he said, well, I can't buy you a car either, but i tell you what I'll do. I'll give you the money to buy that car, and then you can pay me back. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. So I get a job at a grocery store on Ninth and Quintar and uh, sacking groceries and trying to get old ladies to give me tips by smiling at them and patting them on the back, that sort of thing. And uh, that car cost $250, and I paid for that car in one summer. And, uh, of course, that fall, I had to go to Jack State. Well, I didn't have to. I wanted to go because I wanted to be a coach. And uh, so I drove that 1954 Chevrolet to Jacksonville State University for two years until I got a 64 Chevrolet. Now, I'll tell you a couple of things about that car now. It was a great car. But now, I had to go over 10th Street Mountain, and to get over that hill was not a big deal unless it was raining. 
And I found out later on, of course, I didn't know anything about cars, but I found out that to, in order to, uh, uh, the wipers were on a vacuum system. And Paul would probably know a little bit more about this and some of the folks that know about cars. But the, vac- the, the wipers would not work uh, while you had the accelerator down. So if you're like halfway up that hill and it's raining, <laughs> you've got to let off the accelerator oh my. to let it swipe a couple of times. Was it a five-speed or a three-speed? Oh, 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 gosh, no. It's a little. Uh, it's a, a six-cylinder, but it's a little small six-cylinder motor, a little six-cylinder engine. And um, an automatic. And uh, so I figured out, you know, of course, you know, you get halfway up that hill and let the accelerator off. Mm. Now you're going like five miles an hour. There's people behind you blowing the horn. So I decided, all right, I'm going to get this fixed. So I go home that day. I get home, and I get me a, a piece of rope, and I tie to that um, windshield wiper and run it through the wing glass. Now, back then, you had a wing glass. You had you know, your regular window, and you had a little wing glass. Come through that wing glass, and, and the rope went down in the floor. Well, so with my left hand, I can swipe that windshield wiper with my left hand. It took a little doing. took a little while you know, to get the... It's kind of like driving a straight shift car. You had to kind of get the coordination. Yeah. But I'd be going up that hill, and I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing the wiper with my hand, and then my foot's still on that accelerator. So I'm good to go. So that went on for two years, and then I got my '64, and I thought I had, you know, bought like the car of all cars when I got the '64 Chevy. Yeah. Yeah. Now was your was Mama a saint? My mom was a saint and raised three boys who fought and swindled and scandaled and uh, did all kinds of stuff uh, to each other and to others and didn't care about anybody but themselves, and that includes me at the time. Uh, you know, we just, uh, we, were, we were awful. And she got us, you know, straightened out. And, of course, the older brother left, and then that left me and my younger brother, and then it got a little bit easier for her, and then I left, but... You know, she, yeah, she was a saint, and with with Dad gone for three days, uh, you know, she was it. And of course, he'd come home drunk, and he'd, he'd pass out at some point, and she'd go in. And I'll tell you a little story. I, I, I really felt like my mom was a bad person for a while because she'd, he'd pass out, and she'd go in there and get his billfold, and I, to myself, she's stealing money. Mm-hmm. She's stealing money from my dad. Well, what she was doing, she was getting money to buy groceries or whatever, so he wouldn't spend it all on booze and women and cars right. or whatever yeah. he was doing. Right. And I think he was probably doing all three. And because uh, I know one time he took me on one of these little trips, and I was probably 10 or 12 years old, and I stayed out in the car while he went into this little honky-tonk, and he stayed in there two or three hours, and there's no telling what all he did, and he came back drunk as a skunk, and I had to drive us home. Now, I'm 10 or 12 years old, and this is a straight ship. Mm-hmm. And I tell people this story. It was about a 10-minute drive from where we were. I bet it took us an hour to get home because I'm trying yeah. to find second gear in that car and third gear, whatever. And I remember finally getting it in first gear and drove it first gear for a long time. And, of course, you can't go, what, maybe 20 miles an hour? Right. But uh, that's what I had to do. Well, first I had to get it out of reverse. That was, yeah. That was something. But. I'm dry. He's so drunk he couldn't drive. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, she was a saint, and of course we get home and she's scolding him, and he's about half mm-hmm. passed out anyway. So he, 
And of course, when he wakes up the next day, he's very sad and wants forgiveness and that sort of thing. Right. And right along in there is when I learned what was going on as far as the money out of the billfold mm-hmm. and forgiveness and that sort of thing. Because it, it was my dad. Right. You know? so, sure. And later on in life, he's very apologetic and that sort of thing. But yeah. I'd already forgiven him. So, yeah. You know, but, uh, yeah. So mom was, she was, uh, she probably prayed a lot and. Is that where you got your faith-based background? You know, I think she prayed, but, uh, you know, I I don't know that I got my faith from there. I'd always believed in God, but I knew nothing about Jesus Christ. or any. You know, I I tell people there are no books in my house, no books at all, none. No magazines, no books, no nothing, certainly no Bibles. Uh, So I don't know if faith, uh, maybe hope would be more. Yeah. uh, And then the faith came later. Maybe along about ninth grade, we moved out of West Anniston, which was a place, I'm telling you, Rob, I probably would have been in jail or prison or whatever. We were doing some bad things. Uh, the older boys had me as a watch out, uh, a lookout while they stole radios out of cars. I hate saying this. Yeah. It just, <laughs> someone may see this. Oh, I know who to go get now. I remember somebody stole my radio. Yeah, there, is a, there is a couple of open cases from <laughs> yes, the 60s. Yes, yes, about on Noble Street. But, um, you know, I would be a white. So anyway, if you're a lookout, I'm an accessory. Of course, I couldn't even spell accessory probably back then. But, but you know, uh, my dad had enough sense to get us out of West Anderson. So on that Monday through Thursday, he must have had an epiphany of some kind. Right. And he gets us out of there, and we moved to DeArmondville. So in the ninth grade, I go to DeArmondville, and a man named uh, uh, Red Carter uh, takes me under his wing. And I think that's where I got my faith, because he, he made us pray. And I'm thinking, I don't want to say these things. He'd say, Richard, you got to pray. And I'd say something like, thank you, Lord. All right. Goodbye. Or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but he started us there. And, you know, by the time I was out of there, I was praying. So that's probably where that came from. Yeah. And of course, I'm out of town when he passes away. I didn't even get to go to his funeral. This is, you know, fast forward 20, 30 years. Uh, I'm out of town and find out he's passed on and they've had the funeral. So I didn't even get to go to his funeral. Quite a guy, Red Carter. And they called him Red because of his temper. I never saw his temper except one time. Mm-hmm. I got into a fight with a, a, a guy over a girl at Garnville Junior High School. And he brings us in, and he wears us out right in front of everybody. Now I, that's when I and he was red as a beet in his face, and that's where the red carter came in. Okay. And I'll tell you, Rob, I never. That was the last whipping I got. That was the last time a paddle touched my back end. I mean, he tore us up. And and back then, you did it in front of everybody. So, right. You know, we were kind of. You know, we didn't cry, but there were tears coming to our eyes. Sure. You know, I mean, yeah. it, it hurt. But, uh, yeah, that's probably where I got the faith aspect of it. And from there, I, you know, I kind of blundered my way through high school and college. And then here I am today trying to do what's right. Well, you've lived a great life, a reputable one, and still a long way to go. But thank you for being such a great mentor to me and so many others. You know, today we've covered a lot from Alabama football to uh, uh, kind of how it was for both of us growing up and, different things like that and you know, prayer. So I, I'm reminded uh, as we're getting ready to close here about prayer 
and Crisco cans. <laughs> um, we had a death. We had a death in the family, Richard. <clears throat> we had a death in the family a few years ago, and mm. you know, my people were from the holler, and so we're good. Just good old down to earth people. When anybody's in the hospital, we come running, you know, and we set up in the room with them or out in the mm-hmm. lobby or in our cars, yeah. whatever we have to do. When somebody dies, we all gather and we sit up, you know, the whole night and all that. So we had a death in the family and we had a cousin come by and she happened to be, you know, on up in age and she was a snuff dipper, you know, all of her life. She mm-hmm. used the popsicle stick and pulled the lid mm-hmm. out. And, yep. You know, put her right up in yeah. there. Oh yeah. And uh, anyway, so she was, she was there where the family was gathered, and she was about to leave, but she just kept standing at the doorway, talking, talking, talking. And the more she talked, the more full her mouth got. You know, with the snuff juices. And so, uh, anyway, she was about to turn and walk out the door, and she said, "Y'all care if I pray?" <laughs> And, of course, my aunt said, no, you go right ahead and pray. She said, hand me that spit cup right there. <laughs> so they reached down on the floor, picked up a Crisco can. It was just like Daddy's. Still had the Crisco label on it, the tissue tucked oh, down in it. Yeah. And they handed her, that, uh, handed her that can. She wrapped both hands around it. She said, let us pray. <laughs> Deep South Uh, Humor and Heart with Rob Goodwin. (laughs)